human beings of the world, it's time to enter the spoilerverse through our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with John and Kendrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on scpod.net. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Join the army of the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That's Mr. Horsley. And today on the show... Well, she is the owner-proprietor creator of the Eva Inc. Artist Group, pros and cons, celebrity booking, and she's been an editor within the comic book industry for a very, for quite a few years. And this is, it's time for Renee Wittestatter, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. She's an editor, a writer. She's a lot of fun to talk with. We had a great time. We talked about, which it's, it's kind of cool because this is one of the few times where I actually bought a book on the show. Yeah. And I have it right there. And it is beautiful, by the way. Yeah, it's she. She's, yeah, she's done some amazing things. Uh, when we started talking with her, when I, when we booked her to come on, Renee is a very cool girl to to talk with. She's just, she's a hoot. She really is. Uh, she has stories for days. Uh, we use, we actually use her services to bring guests on, which is amazing. And uh, you've heard quite a few of them. Actually, Mark Rolston came through Renee, uh, which was awesome. And she's had a flourishing career and a very colorful career uh, herself. So to yeah. get her on and to go over everything. And once you start, like when you book somebody, you start like researching so that you can talk with them. And the amount of information that came flowing <laughs> through about Renee was like, holy crap, this girl has done everything. Yeah, it's you awesome. Know? Yeah, it's just awesome. And then she was just so open and just so affable. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this, this interview. Yeah, we had a lot of fun talking with her. And it was uh, and there's just certain certain people who stand out as being you know a good time and a good time and good fun to talk with, and this is one of them for sure. Yeah, there you guys go. All right, well let's sit back and relax and uh, listen to Renee in her own words. guys thanks for coming back and today on the show it's uh well this is <laughs> this is really cool actually because uh she is somebody that i was not aware of growing up and i feel like i should have um she has she's a writer an editor a publisher an artist agent uh she's worked with the likes of john byrne jackie chan and the list just keeps going on and on. She actually worked with one of the greatest artists, cover artists that you probably don't even know existed, but did DC stuff for 30 years in Nick Cardi. Um, Renee Witterstatter, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, hey guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is, um, you've had a long and spanning career. It's kind of amazing, actually. 
It's been multifaceted for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I go through and I start reading about people and, and looking them up. And you graduated out of college with a, a, a degree in, in uh, journalism and English. But then you started reporting on boxing. What was that I like? Yes, I did. Yeah, well, you did your research. Wow. Always, always. Uh, well, you know, um, having a degree in journalism and English, I was always working on some sort of article. Yeah. But the types of articles that I enjoyed the most were feature articles because I always thought everybody has a story, no matter who they are, and you just have to find out what it is way. about that person that is interesting and convey it in a way that people can relate to them. And uh, the world of boxing, I got into sort of sideways. I had a <laughs> professor in college who was uh, my Shakespeare professor. His name was uh, Dr. Lawrence McNamee, very well-known teacher at that university, very, very gifted Shakespeare professor. But he had a great interest in boxing. And because uh, his father had been a boxer, and he grew up in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and was really enamored with the whole world of, of boxing, and actually knew a lot of the people, George Foreman, um, you know, uh, Sonny Liston, wow. a lot of the a lot of the um, old time boxers too. So he had been covering boxing for a long time, and. He and I actually started working on articles together, not at, for boxing at first, but because I was editor of the newspaper at my college, Doc had this thing where he would get together uh, groups of people, actors, uh, other people that wanted to get involved in the community. And he, one of the things he did was he would take his traveling Shakespeare group to places like prisons are, oh, wow. um, you know, retirement homes. Prisons were probably the most out there thing we did. But he would actually take our group to places like that. And I would come along as the reporter reporting on whatever we were doing, where we were going, and then I would do articles about it for the for the newspapers. Uh, yeah, that was wild. We went into a maximum security prison in Texas, and I was the only girl. Oh, my uh, God. I think we were doing a fellow... Uh, if I remember correctly, and even the female parts in the play were being played by men yeah. because there was a strict rule in the prison that women could not come in. It was a maximum security male-only prison. But they somehow got me in, and the warden what? said, he's like, okay, you can come, but you have to be dressed from neck to toe. You cannot show any skin at all. And, you know, because otherwise there could be, like, some trouble. So, I okay, so I wore, like, the most unattractive flower sack I could find. <laughs> but even then, you're in this auditorium full of a thousand people, and you are the only female. It was, it was a bit disconcerting, but very memorable. <laughs> so that's, that's the crazy. kind of thing Doc did. Sure. And he was always doing something like that. He would go to Vegas before the big fights and interview all the fighters and you oh, know, he knew cool. John King and, and Tyson and all these people. Oh, so man. I started working <laughs> with him on the boxing articles too and yeah. started tagging along to Vegas and ended up being at parties in Don King's suite and 
interviewing Tyson and Holyfield and all wow. these crazy guys. Oh yeah, That's George incredible. Foreman was a hoot too. I love George. He was uh, probably one of the the nicest guys I met in that world. Not all of them were nice, believe it or not. Shocking! How odd is that? George was George was a hoot. I really liked him. We we went to his house down in Texas one time, you know, and he's the Reverend George Foreman at that point, and uh, we went to his house and. Uh, when you went to George's house, you had to take your shoes off. And uh, so you take your shoes off and go into his house, and then he starts introducing you to his sons, and I and I swear to you, it is true, they are all named George. So <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. I was like, I heard that like all his kids are named George. It's just the sons? <laughs> yeah, it is true. He didn't want any of them to feel slighted. Oh, that's so funny. He wanted all of them to know Man. that he loved them equally. So, oh, that's kind of yeah, sweet, they love though. Doc. Every time they see Doc with his Pittsburgh pirate hat on, they go, "Oh, here comes the professor." You know, he was a <laughs> he was a character. So I learned a lot from him and uh, had some great adventures. We had a wow. lot of really fun adventures uh, doing articles together. And he was he was one of my mentors and a really fascinating man. I really want to write a book about him someday, and I will. That's the uh, one of my things that I have to do while I'm still on this earth. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing read because uh, that's quite the life. Well, he was a violinist. He was a Shakespeare professor, Damn. boxing expert, and <laughs> I forgot to mention this. He was actually a translator at the Nuremberg trials. What? Yes. What? <laughs> oh, my God. That's a most amazing life. He's got stories he, for days. Oh, yeah. He uh, he grew up in Pittsburgh, and his family, his father, his brothers, a lot of them worked in the, the coal mine. And he really thought that was going to be his future, was working in the coal mine. And uh, then it was um, discerned that he was going to, um, he was a Catholic. It was discerned that he was uh, going to go into the, uh, the ministry and yeah. become a Catholic priest. But while he was in school, uh, his voice changed, and they kicked him out of the choir. (laughs) At that point, he was like, well, I don't think I I want to be a priest after all. And he became, uh, you know, through the course of other events, he became a Shakespeare professor. He actually had a very long... correspondence with people like Laurence Olivier. I mean, just, just a fascinating man, a fascinating life. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a book in there, definitely. Yeah, that's oh, awesome. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't imagine being at the Nuremberg Trials and I then know, being a right? translator. I mean, it's like, what are you doing? Are tr- he was transcribing or translating? He was, uh, he was translating. <laughs> like someone would be on the witness stand and then he would, he would translate what they were it, saying. So he spoke another language, obviously. Oh, he what? spoke German. I forgot to mention that. Yes, he was <laughs> fluent in German. <laughs> wow, that's incredible, though. I mean, it's like... Oh, uh, yeah. Oh. Fascinating man. And, and I, I have to say he is one of the people, one of the top five people that if not for him, I would not be on the path that I am now. You know, you meet these yeah. people in life and they're like a boulder in the middle of the river. You know, when you hit that, that's ball, a great you're analogy. Go one way or the other. 
Yeah, that's a great you know? analogy. Yeah, and he's, that's, he's yeah, one is. of the people that put me on this path for sure. Isn't it funny? Like I talk to people that they, you know, I don't want to go to college. And I'm like, it's the experience of college, and the people yeah. that you meet, and like the professors that you get to meet, can change your life. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. I think the first teacher I had that really changed my life. Not to talk too much about the the ancient past, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, my uh, I have two that really come to mind. Well, actually, three, but one of them was a bad experience, so I shouldn't mention him by name. But <laughs> but I, mean, I, had, I had two teachers that really had a very positive influence on me. At you know, my third grade teacher who took me in and, like, gave me the love of reading. I remember her so vividly. And just having someone that takes the time to teach a child and to, to give them that attention. But yeah. one of the most uh, influential teachers I ever had, her name was Connie Penny. And she was my journalism teacher in high school. I was a very shy kid when I was growing up. I was overweight for a lot of my life, and I um, spent a lot of time reading, and I spent a lot of time watching old movies, and yeah. a lot of time writing, and I was an artist when I was younger, too. So I was one of those kids that, that spent a lot of time in my head, and I uh, didn't know what course I wanted for my life. And my brother, Robert, was in journalism in high school. He was uh, is three years older than me. And there was a journalism party. And I was still in junior high. And he said, well, come to this party with me. So I went with him. And uh, it was put me on another one of those boulders in the stream. It, like, yeah. put me, it changed my life. Because I met Connie Penny, the journalism teacher. This gregarious outgoing woman who had once gone on a date with Elvis. I mean, she was that kind of woman, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and she was just full of life. And I said, wow, you know, and she's someone that you wanted to be around. Yeah. And because of her, I said, well, I'm going to sign up for journalism. Even, even though I was this shy kid, I, I, was, I should digress a little bit and say that I was the um, editor of my junior high school paper, too, which is one of the reasons Robert invited me to this thing because he knew that I had an interest in right. in history and he could see that bug. He could see that and, see that itch scratching at you. Yeah, he knew that I had an interest in that, and I, I was a big history buff back then too. And um, you know, would make slideshow documentaries on World War II and things like that for fun. <laughs> uh, so he uh, he introduced me to Connie Penny. I got into journalism and I was, and became the editor of my paper in high school. Also, and uh, <laughs> she was so there's funny. a theme she going recently, on. <laughs> yeah, she recently passed away, and uh, but I always remember her. You know, she she just her sense of humor. She even named here, here's what she named her daughter. She yeah. named her daughter Precious. Her daughter's name was Precious Penny. I'll never forget her. She's just another one of those bigger than life people that you that influence your life sometimes. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so long nice. story short, yes, I was in journalism. That's what what <laughs> was really became the focus for me, uh, and I think mostly because it was being a shy person when I was yeah. growing up. 
it was a way to relate to people. Because when you're a reporter, you've got to ask people questions. You know, you've got to, you know, you've got to interact with people. And, um, and like I said, in, 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 you know, in, in, in uh, the same vein as that, I always found it fascinating to find out people's stories. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's nice. I, I love hearing people's journey more than the, more than just the successes. You know what I mean? The, the actual, like when we talk to people, I always try to get them to start talking about things, uh, how they got to where they're at. Because inevitably, it's always so more interesting than just the fact that they have this one, you know, one or two or this giant success story, you know, but they had to do all these things to get there. And it's, I I find it remarkably fascinating. It's all about choices, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, because you can choose to stay at home or you can choose to go out to this party. You know, probably nothing's going to happen. But if you go out to dinner and meet somebody new, if you go to some event and meet somebody new, something has happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know? you got you to gotta be open to, to experiences. Absolutely. And if a door opens, you have to decide if you're going to walk through that door or not. It may be scary. There, it may be dark in that next room. You don't know what's going to happen. But one thing's for sure, if you don't walk through that door, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> right. And I have, exactly to, I have right. to keep reminding myself that sometimes, you know, it's like, well, yeah, it can be scary. It could be scary, but it yeah. could also be exciting. It could also Exhilarating. be fun. It could also yeah. be something that it's supposed to be. You just And sometimes when you go through that bad stuff because you made a wrong choice, at the end when you come out of it, all of a sudden, all these other things open up because you went through that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, have, I have examples of that, too. Years ago, I'm talking maybe 20 years ago, I got a fortune cookie. <laughs> yeah. And I think I still have this fortune <laughs> somewhere because it was, to me, at the time, it was the most profound fortune cookie that I ever got, you know, ever ever cracked open. And, and the fortune was, it's better to have remorse than to have regret. It's better to have done something mm. yep. and say, oh, dang, that didn't go the way I thought it would. Yep. Than to sit around your whole life and think, what if I had done that? Yep. I, yeah, that's an, I'd keep that fortune, too. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while, I think, yeah, okay, that didn't really go the way I, I thought it would. But, hey, at least I tried it. <laughs> yep. Yep. At least I tried. As long as it's not skydiving that goes wrong, you can always try again. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so after journalism, well, I shouldn't say after journalism, your next path in life led you to DC and you started editing with, um, oh, what is his name? Mike Carlin. Yeah, Mike Carlin. That's right. That's right. And yeah, you I did. Remember him. You did like there what? Were, a... <laughs> there were a few steps along the way between journalism and that. Let me yeah. just point out that journalism is still a part of my life because I still write. You know, I still write historical books. I still write yeah. biographies. So I've never really left that behind. Even right. when I was an editor at Marvel, I would still write um, articles about my life and try to give people a little insight into who I was and how I thought. But 
after college, my first degree, I mean, my first degree, my first job was with a company called Bulldog Productions down in Dallas. And they put on um, a lot of uh, comic book conventions, but the most famous one they did was the Dallas Fantasy Fair. This was, to me, really the forerunner of the the modern-day convention. because It was run by a gentleman named Larry Langford, who is now deceased, um, too young. But uh, Larry was one of the first people that really put together comic book shows other than San Diego that, yeah. that brought together writers and artists and actors. You know, he was one of the first people to, to really bring Stan Lee to a lot of shows and people like Adam West and, Sounds like a visionary. and TV people. Yeah, people like uh, Butch Patrick from TV shows. And, and it was a hoot. You know, he would bring yeah. all these people together and it was a very intimate uh uh, scene because you would just hang out with these people and really get to know them. Writers like Larry Niven, uh, you know, the people that I'd never nice. dreamed of meeting when I was growing up. And I eventually became the co-chair of that with uh, with Larry. And I did that for about two or three years, but less than three years. But through that experience, I met a lot of great people and a lot of fantastic people from the comic book world people like Jim Salakrup, who is still a very good friend of mine to this day. And one of the people I met was uh, the artist Mike Beck. I'm sure you know who Mike is. Um, And, uh, you know, he was one of the guests at the show, and he um, was friends with Mike Carlin. And Mike had mentioned to him that he was looking for a new assistant editor. And Mike called me up and said, hey, you know, uh, Carlos looking for an assistant editor. Why don't you apply for the job? I'll put in a good word for you. And he did. He gave me a glowing recommendation. Nice. And, and pretty much very, you know, within a day, I had a job in, in New York. Wow. And I had to, to load up the uh, the truck and move to Beverly at that point. But, yeah. Um, not, but it, it was New York instead. Right. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> uh, but it felt, it, it was like an adventure for me at that time because I just had to load everything into this U-Haul trailer. And my friend Keith Wilson, who is a used to work for DC Comics, he's also a, an artist, helped me drive the thing up to New York. And we broke down about three times oh, headed no. up there. <laughs> the whole thing was just, uh, uh, it was just, I'm going, man, am I supposed to do this? <laughs> right. Is this a sign? That, like, I am not supposed to go to New York? <laughs> uh, finally, the radiator on the car blew out. We were the, in the middle of nowhere. And I, I don't oh, even man. remember what state it was. Yeah. But I swear to you, we, like, broke down in the middle of nowhere. And this truck comes along, this um, uh, haul, you know, to, to haul the car away, and they stop. Yeah, and this guy gets out in the middle of the night with a full moon, and he's like, "Oh, so your car's broken down? Well, I can I can tow you to my shop, and and we can fix it and get you back on the road by the morning, probably." So, that they, is so they, cool. they, they we were like, "Okay, we're you know." So he he like takes us to where his shop is, and is this dilapidated Victorian house <laughs> on the top of a hill with like junk cars all around it. <laughs> silhouetted by a full moon. Oh my I'm god! Thinking, you know, I'm in a Stephen King novel. Start to a horror movie <laughs> more apropos than this. <laughs> 
but anyway, we survived. And he fixed the car. And I made it to New York. And I worked That's for nice. Carlin for uh, I worked with Carlin for uh, you know about two years. Yeah. So you know a lot of good things came from that. But yeah. just imagine this naive kid because I really was a kid at the time, and uh, all my clothes had big floral prints on them and big puffy sleeves because that's what we wore in Texas at that time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and here I am in New York working at this publishing company and everyone's wearing black. <laughs> that's you got what you do in puffy New York. prints on your sleeves and they probably just thought you were adorable. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like wearing dresses to work every day and high heels and big floral prints and <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think I still had a mullet at that time. I think I'd grown my mullet out, but thank oh, God. Oh man! But it was—I <laughs> kind of stood—I kind of stood out a little bit. Oh, I didn't, that I didn't probably worked to your advantage in. too, though, because oh, here's this crazy girl coming up the street. But then you—you you kicked butt. You did exactly what I, you needed to do. I, I was—I I tried. I tried. I, I think Carlin taught me a lot. He—he uh, he was. Um, he was a hard boss, but he he uh, knew his job, yeah. and he knew how to put together comic books, and he taught me everything. He taught me from, uh, he taught me everything about storytelling to, you know, balloon placements to, to working with writers and artists. I, I really learned so much from him. Yeah. But now, being young and green, it really was a trial by fire, and I'm sure I was frustrating to him because I I really didn't know anything about putting together comic books. Right. But when I first got there, but he right. made damn sure I learned. Oh, I bet. So, so he was, you know, I, I cannot fault Mike because he, he really taught me everything, and it served me well for a long time. That's good, because sometimes you meet people especially when you're green on something and they don't want to teach, you know, they want somebody that knows what they're doing right off the bat. So it's nice that you, he took the time to actually ingrain into you the proper techniques. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, I had come from a journalism background Yeah, and from there I was, I was doing PR for a convention. Right. So I had never put together a comic book in my life. <laughs> uh, I, I, knew about storytelling from movies and and to me that was an interesting thing because i really always looked at comic books as a movie on paper and i tried to think of it that way yeah that's a great and, way to think I about tried it to, to think of the storytelling that way yeah and i also found over time that my my journalism came into play because every good story no matter what it is you have to answer the questions you have to answer who what when where why and how yeah. Every story has to have that, and it doesn't matter what kind of story it is. For it to be a complete story and to be a satisfying story, you have to answer all those questions. So that doesn't matter if it's a movie, a comic book, um, you know, a, a novel. You've, you've got to answer a, a feature story in a newspaper. Every story has to answer those questions or you haven't done your job. So in that regard, I think, uh, I think my journalism training came into play. Were you, were you influenced by the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell? That is not. I didn't really know about the the Joseph Campbell, the works of Joseph Campbell, when I was growing up. Yeah, I only learned about that later when I met Michael Golden, another fantastic artist. Uh, amazing and artist. Michael is a big fan of Joseph Campbell. 
Yeah, and, him and George uh, Lucas both. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, inadvertently, I was a fan of Joseph Campbell because I was always a big Star Wars fan. Yeah. And I learned out, learned later, of course, that uh, that George Lucas was also very influenced by, by Campbell. Yeah, it's really cool, actually, when you th- think about the influence of people and how it, it resonates throughout literature. And then it just keeps trickling down, like you would be influenced by Joseph Campbell, not even knowing that you're being influenced by Joseph Campbell. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> when you got over to Marvel, you started working with John Byrne, and you worked on Sensational She-Hulk. You guys did the whole fourth wall breaking before that was even a thing to do. Right. And what was working with, with Byrne like? Was it Because, I mean, he's a legend in the field. Oh, uh, yeah, it might be. Well, let me just uh, backtrack a little bit and, and talk about Marvel for a minute. Yeah, that, please do. During that time, Marvel was like a big family, which is one of the reasons I went over there. I, 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 I learned, you know, trial by fire at DC, but DC was much more corporate back then than Marvel was. And I knew people that worked at Marvel, of course, because I had known uh, Jim Salakrup from my Dallas days. And Jim called me up one day and said, hey, Craig Anderson is looking for an assistant editor. Yeah. And I, I really didn't see any um, promotional opportunities coming up anytime soon at D.C. So I made the jump. I jumped from one company to, to I jumped from D.C. to Marvel. And at the time, it was the perfect thing for me to do because Marvel, being by myself in New York, not having my family around me, Marvel was much more of a family atmosphere. You worked with people, people hung out together. You were like a, a big family. It was like I said before, it you know, you joke around the office. We had Mark Grunewald there at the time who just made sure that there was a sense of camaraderie. He was always planning Halloween parties and really he would plan a party for anything. <laughs> yeah. It was like okay, oh it's uh it's uh, June fifth. Let's have a party. Yeah, and he and he just he made everybody feel like we were part of Marvel. And he also took time to train the assistant editors. Every week, he would have assistant editor school, and actually cool. to teach us the craft of putting together a comic book. So I had a lot of friends there, and a, and a great boss in Craig Anderson. We uh, worked on Silver Surfer and Guardians of the Galaxy, and a lot of things that have since you know gone on to to really explode. I yeah. tell you, when we were doing Guardians of the Galaxy back then, I would have never predicted it would have become this big movie franchise. Yeah, uh, you know, I always loved it. It was always a lot of fun to work on, and it's it's gratifying to see, even though the movies are a lot different than the comic books in, in right. so many ways. But it was, and we worked on Thanos Quest and with Jim Starlin. We worked on a lot oh of great God, things. Such in that a office. great story. So when I became, oh, it is, right? Very, yeah. very, so much fun to work on, too. I love Jim. Uh, he's a great guy. But one of the first things I got to work on when I became a full editor, when I got promoted to be a full editor, yeah. one of my first jobs that I got to work on was She-Hulk. And Byrne actually asked for me specific, um, directly. He wanted... Because, you know, he had gone to uh, Tom DeFalco, and, uh, who was our editor-in-chief, and, and uh, he was looking for an editor to take over She-Hulk, and he specifically asked for me. And I said, yeah, sure, because I had known John from socializing 
with him and some other people. Out in Connecticut, we would get together and have volleyball games at his house. And so I knew him. We, we were friends. And so I said, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. And working with John was a hoot. I mean, I actually looked forward to what we were going to do every day. Yeah. We had a we had a really good collaborative relationship. We would bounce story ideas off of each other. And John was very professional. Would always get the work in on time. He he made and always good, always on time, always funny and always communicative. I he never gave me a a, a, a moment's worry as far as him being being there and doing his job and making it great. The, and he would always, uh, people ask me sometimes, because, you know, he put me in as a character in the book. Yeah, right, which is awesome. Yeah, and <laughs> people have asked me so often, like, oh, did you know John was going to do that? Did you did you know you were going to be in the book? And, and, and the answer is no, I really didn't. Because we would, we would do the stories, we would discuss what the story was going to be, and then John would submit a script, and I wouldn't be in the script. And then he would draw the book, and then all of a sudden I would get the pages, and sometimes they would already, you know, my pages would already be inked, and he would have put me, he put me in as a character. You know, and it'd be too late to change anything, not that I would have anyway, because I thought it was hilarious. Um, but he would always sneak it in. And just, I just, I think just to entertain me because he knew, he knew I got a kick out of it. And, uh, and it, it was just, it was just fun. You know, it's just some, one of those fun things that we did. And I love the little world he created for me in the comic book too, because I, he would have me in this big palatial corner office with, uh, with a, you know, penthouse view and, uh, you know, guys bringing me uh, coffee on a tray in the morning and, and I guarantee you, my existence at Marvel was not like that. <laughs> For a long time, I didn't even have an office that had a window. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I've been there. I, I've I, done that. <laughs> no window yeah, office. And, and I certainly didn't have anyone bringing me coffee. But in She-Hulk, I had all those things. So. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Are you still coloring? I really don't color much these days, only because... When I was coloring, I uh, I was using Dr. Martin's dyes and mixing the colors myself. And and when you were coloring each page, yeah, you were creating little paintings. And and uh, now it's it's all digital, and yeah. it's it's a completely different skill set, completely different thing. And I will say though that I really miss some of the coloring we were doing back then because to me. Coloring is a storytelling tool. Yeah. What coloring is supposed to do is it is supposed to move the story along. It's supposed to make your eye flow from panel to panel and page to page, and it's supposed to be very clear what is going on. It's a storytelling tool. Right. And I think a lot of the digital coloring is kind of losing that, that because mood. it becomes very muddy. And if you have to, if you're reading a book and you have to stop to try to figure out what's going on in the art because the coloring isn't doing its job. Right. And that's the case. The coloring is not doing its job. Not setting that right. mood. Yeah. It's, it's, it's setting a mood. It's setting the story. It's, it's, it's one of the tools of our trade. 
Yeah. And I always look for that when I'm hiring a colorist. I always look for someone that understands that. But frankly, I just don't have time. Um, I'm so busy doing everything else these days and and, uh, publishing the art books and and booking my clients and, and writing when I have the time and that's and a great. The, the other things that I'm doing, I just don't really have the time for the coloring anymore. If I were to do anything like that, I might get back to painting or doing my yeah. own art you know, more than I would do it for comics these days. I think. Do you, I actually? This is actually a good question for you because I okay. think you've seen the you've seen the people that you've seen the old school guard, and now you're into, and now you see the new school, the the new guard, and the digital versus. Like you were just saying that you felt like you're more presenting a painting, you're doing all this stuff. Do you think new artists would benefit by doing more of their original by hand and having that secondary market of being able to go to cons and being able to sell more of that original stuff um, because they have the ability to actually sell a physical thing? Well, sure. Yeah, I think that as an agent, of course, uh, wanting my clients to, to make money for themselves and for me, yeah. I always prefer to have, you know, the, uh, the physical art. Um, and I think that fans love to see the physical art. Yeah, and I, I just think it makes sense for an artist to have that, that cash flow revenue, you know, that, that revenue for themselves. Yeah. Uh, but even if they don't, I think that they they need to be able to have that skill to to produce an original if they want to. Yeah. Uh, because you learn something different. It's just a different tactile thing. You learn something different creating something with a pencil and an ink brush than you learn from doing it digitally. You can create art both ways. But I think just connecting to something... Um, you connect to things in different ways. If you connect something, if you connect to a piece of art by doing it um, traditionally with pencil, you know, pencils or a brush, you can get that sensibility in your head and you can still take that feeling into creating it digitally. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, a, it's all the senses coming together. And yeah. I, I I think there's a place for digital art. I, I think, that, of course, that's the way our industry's going. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, a good analogy. Um, you know, it's like creating something from scratch when you're cooking, you know, and once you have that in your head of all these, what it takes to create that art, you know, creating that meal that you're making, taking all the ingredients out of the cupboard and putting them together and knowing how the different things smell and taste and work together in tandem. Once you have that sensibility in your head and that sense memory, then you can use it anyway. You know, and it's the same way with, with art. You know, it's like it's it has to be true no matter what you're doing, whether it's digital or art you know, pen and ink. I don't want to call yeah. it old school because I don't think it's old school. Right. You know, I hate that term. I hate the term old school. I don't think there is such a thing. Um, it's There's no such thing as old school or new school. It's just good school. Yeah. Yeah, just, that's a good point. Create, oh, yeah. Yeah, just create good art. I don't yeah. care how you create it. And if you, and, and that's whether it's writing, painting, 
you know, sequential art. Just make it good. I, I don't know. I've, I've had a lot of people in, in recent years come up to me and remind me that I gave them their first job or that I, you know, <laughs> nice even cool. to the point of, like, answering someone's mail, like, in the letter column was yeah. important to people. It's like, hey, That's... you noticed me. You read my letter. You published my letter. That was very important to me at the time. Yeah. And it gave me confidence or it made me feel like I was part of the Marvel family or, you know, it's like you never know what you do, how what you do is going to affect people. And that's something we really have to keep in mind in this industry. When you create a story, when you write something, it's going out there and you don't know the people yet that are reading it or what, that what you're saying is going to influence them in a positive way and in a negative way. You gotta be, yeah. you know, you gotta keep that in mind. And and you could put somebody on a, a whole path. You could be the boulder in the stream for them, and you don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, this is this is totally true. I mean, we try to be as positive as we can on this show, and and you know, try to learn from everything. We're not, you know, we'll have people on, and they might have a difference of opinion, but. You can learn something from somebody, and oh, almost from anybody. Yeah, yeah. You learn something from every experience, whether it's yeah. good or bad. And hey, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I mean, I'm sure that I have pissed some people off in my career. I'm sure <laughs> I've got some enemies here and there. If I do, I don't really know because I probably don't talk to them anymore. But <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I've got some people out there that that don't like me, although. You know, I could probably name the people I don't like on a few fingers, but we won't go there. Right. Um, anyway. You know what's interesting about that whole, you know, her whole work at Marvel? Was that? She was there when the whole fourth wall breaking with She-Hulk was happening. Yeah, yeah she was a part of that. <laughs> yeah, and and now it's like the, this big thing with Deadpool and other characters too, but mostly, you know, it's really synonymous with Deadpool. Yeah. But She-Hulk set the standard for it, you know, what, 10, 15 years before? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, let's see, mid-80s, early 90s, to Deadpool didn't do it until the late 90s, so yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. It is crazy. I mean, it's John Burns' run, and she was the editor on it, and uh, that's, it's just, I don't know. We learned, I feel like I learned a lot in that first half of this thing. Yeah. She was like a hidden gem. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you know? She just came out. She had so much. And it felt weird because it's... I feel like she's somebody that you and I should have known about a long time ago. And it and, right? and Jeff really brought us to her... to our Brought her to our attention, which... Uh, thanks a lot because she's she's awesome. Yeah, we had such a good time talking with her that we, our interviewer... Our, I, I mean, interview slash conversation ran for over two hours. Yeah. So... Get ready for part two. Coming yeah. soon. Coming this afternoon. Oh, there you go. Yeah. This <laughs> <laughs> is a bam, bam. Bam. The next one we talk about, you know, Tops Comics and a little bit about Jackie Chan. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, it is. Well, there you guys go. I hope you really enjoyed that as much as we loved making it. Yep. Because, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. And if you love interviews and you love this style and you want more in the comic book industry, Maybe in just writing voiceovers, TV shows, directors, actors. We run the gambit here. We do. And if you go back to our website at spoilerverse.com, you're going to find a ton of episodes to listen to. 
yeah, yeah, there's so many interviews there. There's so many other shows, too. So not only are you going to find 330, 350, however many episodes are out when you listen to this, 500,000, I don't know, episodes of our show, there's hundreds of episodes of the other shows, the other 12 to 13 shows that are on our network, like Nerdtocalypse, like Bridging the Kingdom, Smithery Point Radio, Narrative Gunslinger, so many great shows up there. And you, all of it up there, no paywall. You can go up there and listen to all of them all you want. You can also go read great articles by Jay Roach and Sarah Kay and David Mayer. There's so many articles and reviews and just thought pieces going out there every day. There's so much there. And while you're there, you should click in the middle of that top bar, the stores button, go to our store and check out the cool merchandise we have, which is, you know, some, some logo stuff, some funny stuff for t-shirts and for, for hoodies and for mugs and for tapestries or whatever. And, and you help support us a little bit there that way if you can. There you guys go. One last thing. If you don't mind, <laughs> open up your podcatcher, do a search for Spoiler Country, give us a subscribe. It helps tremendously. And while you're doing that, leave us a review because that on top of it really helps us out. And we can't thank you enough for sticking with us, listening to all we have to say, and I hope you're having as good a time as we are. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there, and, and that's a show, man. That is a show. All right, guys. In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more. I totally paused there for some reason. I don't know, but I like it. It works. I couldn't stop now. <laughs> <laughs>